Good morning. I read this incredible book a few years back. I'm sure many of you heard of it called The Boys in the Boat. I mean, I have never rowed anything in my life, but I felt like rowing something after reading this book. I, it's amazing. So you, you know how it ends from the beginning because it's right there on, on the cover. So it's the eight-oared team from the University of Washington that won the gold medal in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. It's a story of some underdogs. I mean, you have the elites from the West, like people who are crew from the West. You have the elites from the East, all the Ivy League guys. And then you have this University of Washington team. I mean, they're just a bunch of lumberjacks and loggers and farmers. They're blue-collar workers, but they were scrappers. And they came together... And they won this race with the odds against them. Actually, in the Olympic race, they were put in the worst lane where they had a headwind against them the whole time. One of their team members was incredibly sick, but yet they rose up. And in the face of Nazi Germany, where Hitler's like, we're superior to everybody else. And he gave his teams absolutely everything they needed. You had this scrappy little team from nowhere who rose up and won this against all odds. One of the, my famous, uh, favorite, actually, favorite parts of the whole book, it's talking about uh, the Poughkeepsie Regatta. It's like where all the universities that had the best teams would come together on the Hudson River. And they would have this, I mean, incredibly, there'd be hundreds of thousands of people who would show up back in the 30s to this. So this was like a huge, huge event. And they're in the regatta, and they're out one night, and they're practicing and they knew they had a lot of raw talent, but they just couldn't get in sync. And in the rowing world, they call it swing. And when you hit your swing, that's when you really hit your power because you're so kind of meshed with each other. There's such a unity that happens because in a team with those eight oars, you've got to be like a symphony. And they hadn't been able to have that. Well, one of the lead guys, his name is Joe Rance. It's kind of what the story is about. It's like through a little bit through his eyes in some case. He had had a really, really terrible childhood. Like when he was 10 years old, uh, his father had uh, remarried because his mom, his birth mother, had passed away. And the stepmom didn't like him at all, a little 10-year-old boy, and said, I, I want him out of the house. And so the father put him out of the house, and he lived in the back of the schoolhouse where he chopped wood so that he could stay there. And then when he was 15, they actually just left him. They just totally left him. They went to another city, and he was all on, on his own at 15. So he became really, really self-reliant, really independent. But he's a phenomenal athlete, and he enters into the University of Washington. And of all things, he thought that he would go for like, like running, like an individual sport, because that's his life, individual and self-reliance. And instead, what he does is he goes out for the ultimate team sport. And so here you have this team that is really, really raw talent, incredible talent. They have a lot of talent, but they can't get in sync. And finally, before the Olympics, actually on the Hudson River, one night they're out with other boats and it's pitch black. You couldn't see a thing. And if you talk to these nine guys in total, even when they were old men, they would tell you this was the night that they remembered. They knew a secret that nobody else knew because it was on that night in the pitch black darkness that they found their swing. And as they're rowing down this river and the other boats are around them, they're just leisurely rowing, but they're so in sync with each other that you couldn't hear a noise. Total silence as they were in total sync with each other and they were flying past the other boats because they hit their swing and they hit their swing because they were total unity. Today I want to talk about we're all on the same team. We're all in the same boat. 
There's a unity that's going to be discussed here by Paul in Romans chapter 3 that is really, really important for us to understand what in the world is the gospel saying. Because we so often will misunderstand what the gospel is saying, what is being presented to us about Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 3. And to highlight kind of that individual spirit and, and instead having the cooperative spirit, Joe Rance, when they, when they came to him, when the writer came to him years ago, he's passed away now, when he came to him and says, I'd like to write, I'd like to write your story, he says this, he says, but not just about me, it's about the boat. It has to be about all of us. It has to be about the entire team. There's a figure in, uh, in the boys in the boat, and I highly recommend Like When this story was over, even though I knew the way it ended, I, 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 I wept. That's how powerful this story was. There's a figure in this, and his name is George Yeoman Pocock. He's kind of like a Yoda figure, if you're a Star Wars fan. He's kind of like this wise sage. And this is what he says about the spiritual value of rowing. What is the spiritual value of rowing? The losing of self entirely to the cooperative effort of the crew as a whole. This is what we want to talk about today. The importance of understanding that every single one of us in this room, watching on Grace Live and around the world, we're simply all on the same team. We're all simply in the exact same boat in the eyes of God. I'd like us to begin today by reading that powerful scripture one of the most memorable scriptures, scriptures of all of Romans, Romans 1.16. Can we do that together? You can locate it. It's on the screen in front of you or it's on the back of your bulletin. I'd like us to read that together. Ready? For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I wanted us to do that again today because uh, what we're going to focus on today is probably we're entering into one of the most radical sections of the entire book. Like you said, man, this has been pretty tough already. Well, you ain't seen nothing yet because Paul really cuts loose in Romans chapter three, and this is what we're going to do. But I want to say again, what is at stake here? Because I'm going to ask you to do something at the end of this message that's not going to be comfortable for you. It's going to be very uncomfortable. It's going to be very unnatural for you. It's unnatural for me. So I want to just remind everybody at the beginning of this what is actually at stake. When people understood, like 2,000 years ago in the city of Rome, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and he wrote this to clarify the gospel. When they grasped it, it completely changed that city. And as a result, our world has been changed. And I've said this before, but I want to say it again. Secular historians will look back 2,000 years ago like, we're not really sure what happened, but something happened that had a dramatic impact on our world. That was Rome 2,000 years ago. We're in Rome today. In 2019, this city, Washington, D.C., is the modern-day Rome. And if something that powerful and life-changing for the betterment of society could happen 2,000 years ago, why can't it happen right here, right today, in February 2019 in modern-day Rome, Washington, D.C.? So that's what's actually at stake, and that's why I'm going to ask you to do something that's completely unnatural to you and to me both. G.K. Chesterton said this, Whatever else men have believed... They have all believed that there is something the matter with mankind. Now, you know it's hard to get anybody to, you know, consensus on anything, any statement, any opinion. It's really hard to get consensus. But here, actually, we have incredible consensus across the board. Marx believed this. Freud believed this. Plato believed this. Gandhi believed this. Jesus believed this. There is something wrong with humanity. We're not who we're supposed to be. So right there from the outset, and this is what Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 3. He's going to say, actually, there is something wrong and we're all equally in the same boat together. No divisions. 
No two different boats. All in the same boat. And it's going to be very, very challenging. I want to remind you who's being written to here. Because I would read this passage years ago, what you're getting ready to hear me read in just a second. And I would say, yeah, yeah, I understand. That is, those people, like they're not Christians, they're that way. Or people who are not good Christians, they're not, they're not talking about somebody like me who is actually seeking after Jesus. But that's not true. Because what you'll find here is Paul is writing a letter to the church at Rome. He's writing a group of Christians. And in this church, they're incredibly divided. That's why he's writing it. Because as I said before, the balance, like it was all kind of Jewish or Messianic Christians, and now all of a sudden Gentiles are flooding. We never thought they would respond to the message of Jesus Christ. Of course they're not going to respond because they're living these crazy debauchery lives, right? But no, they've responded like crazy, and now you have this conflict. And so you have on this side over here, you have, when he says Jews in a second, what he's really talking about is Christians who believe and obey the Bible. And you have over here Gentiles, they don't have the history. They don't know. They're living all kinds of ways. They're doing whatever they want because they don't know what it says. It's brand they just heard about the love of Jesus Christ. They just heard about the story of Christ, that the ultimate driving force of the universe is love and they responded but they don't have the history that you do over there and so what's happening over here is they're looking over there and say yeah but yeah but paul those people like they're habitually sinning like they're the real sinners. like we're over here and they're down there this is the problem it's a very practical problem they're looking at a group of people and saying that's the real sinners we're sinners too but they're really sinning you follow me this is the division. What's that? And so Paul writes this in Romans 3, 9 to 20, to talk about this. Now, I want to say one last thing. I didn't write this. Okay? So I'm going to read some stuff here, and particularly if you're a person, high view the Bible, obey the Bible, right? Like me. That's me. Okay? This is going to, this is going to get up in your grill a little bit. It's going to be tough. I just want to, I didn't, I didn't write it. You know, I've been thinking as I've been reading and reading and reading this so much, getting ready uh, for today. I've been thinking this for weeks as I've been preparing this message for weeks. I, I have in my mind the scene from Gladiator, the opening scene. And Russell Crowe sends the messenger over and then he comes back and they've cut his head off and he's on the horse riding. He's like, oh, we, we have their message. I'm just the messenger. There's no reason to be upset with me. I didn't write this. I'm just, all I'm trying to do is put it in context for everybody, all right? It's as difficult for you as it is for me. All right, here we go. Romans 3, starting in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. Now, this is weird because if you were here last week, he asked the same question. Is there an advantage? He's like, yes, there's incredible advantage. But he's talking about two different things. So last week he was saying, is there an advantage to following the ways of Christ? Yes. Your life will go better. The world will go better. Is there an advantage? Yes. This week, this week when he says there are advantages, is there an advantage that you're like superior, that you're, you're above and those people are below and like, you're, you know, like you're a sinner, but not really a sinner. They're the habitual sinners. They're the real sinners. Tell them, tell them, tell them. He's like, no, that's not true. No, there's no advantage there. Okay. For we have already made the charge that Jews, Christians who believe and obey the Bible, and Gentiles, brand new Christians who don't know anything about the rules of the Bible, are all alike. Excuse me? They're all alike under the power of sin. As it is written, 
There is no one righteous, not even one. And now he gets into, like, these claims that he makes here are just phenomenal, everybody. Just wrestle with this. There's nobody who understands. There's no one who seeks God. Come on. I mean, like, aren't we all here seeking God on some level? There's nobody here. I seek God. I don't know about you, but there's nobody who seeks God. What's he really saying there? I think the question is this. Am I really seeking God or am I seeking what I can get from God? One of the ways you know if you're really seeking God is when you pray about something, you really, really, like you really, really want something, you pray very hard and, and you don't get it. And you're like, I'm done with praying or I don't really believe in God anymore. That kind of lets you know, did you get into this thing because you're seeking God or you're seeking what you can get from God? Are you seeking God or are you seeking what you can get from God's hands? That's, that's tough. What he's really saying is that for the most part, we get into this because what we can get out of God, and it's really a self-interest. That stings a little bit. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Are you serious? Not even one. What is he talking about? You do good stuff. You do good stuff. You know what Nietzsche says? He says there's no thing as pure altruism. It's the same thing that Paul is saying here. That actually we do good stuff in order to actually make us feel better on some level. There's some kind of self-interest out of doing that. Now, all of these things that he's saying here, we call this uh, in scholarship, right? This is called a string of pearls. Because what he does, he strings together six different passages from the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. He strings together. They're most, mostly from Psalms. One of them's from Isaiah, right? And the first one that he talks about is from Psalm 14. It's a famous one. That's where it starts, where he says, no one does good, not even one. It's Psalm 14. And Psalm 14, now they would know this. Here's where we're at a disadvantage. Immediately, those in the congregation, at least those on this side, not those on that side, would immediately understand what he's saying because they knew the Bible so well. And Psalm 14 begins this way. The fool has said in their heart, there is no God. The fool. And you would think he's talking about atheists. But Paul's not talking about atheists here. He's not talking about atheists at all. He's writing to church. He's writing to people who believe the Bible, believe in God, and believe you should obey the Bible. That's these folks over here for sure. But he's talking to everybody who is Christians. He's not talking to anybody who is an atheist. What is a fool in the scripture? A fool is somebody who has a destructive self-interest. So what's famous in the book of Proverbs, you say, the fool is wise in their own, anybody know how it ends? And their own eyes, like I'm up here. Like a fool can't stand really God being above them and they really got to make sure that people are below them. So a fool has to elevate. They have to be superior. The only way for them to feel comfortable is for them to feel, to feel superior over other people. It says, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. Actually, there is no there is in the, in the original Hebrew. It says, the fool says in their heart, no God, like no says no to God, right? This is what's going on. All right, let's continue. Then he goes into all this stuff about their words. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. What is happening there? Why does he get into all our words and our lips and our tongues and our throats? What is he saying? Because what's happening is they're saying, look, we might be imperfect, but those over there in the church, they're the ones that are really sinning. Paul, tell them. So if you read Romans 1, verses 18 to 32, and there's this whole list of sins, they're like, yes, 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 tell them, tell them, tell them. And he's saying to you, shh, shh, don't say a word. 
Stop pointing out their sins because actually you're all in the same boat. And when you speak, when you speak, you're actually condemning yourself. You're thinking that you're up here and they're down here. He's like, shh, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. The poison of vipers on their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. And here's the antidote to everything in verse number 18. There is no fear of, fear of God before their eyes. And fear in the Bible is always about having an awe of God. Just being in awe of God. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. What does that mean? Well, the thing I went through just a moment ago about speaking the words, he's saying, you know what? Every mouth should be silenced because if you really understood the law, then you would know that nobody can actually keep the law. That was the point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Nobody can actually keep the law. So when you're pointing out people who can't keep the law, you're really pointing out the fact that you can't keep the law either because that's what the law points us to. So I can't ever say, oh, stop them, stop them. They're sinners because actually I'm a sinner too and that's why I should be very quiet. That's why he was saying every mouth should be silenced. The only way we can really understand the gospel or when we do finally understand the gospel is when we stand silent before God because we are all in the same boat. Therefore, verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. You have got to be kidding me. And this is where everybody, we don't have any kind of, right? There's, there's nothing in our brains that is, that this got, that's going to work here. There's no mental map for this because every system in the world, every religious system, every system that we have on this planet, that if you follow the rules, and you do the right thing, you're going this way. And what this is saying is that nobody can actually do all of this, and we're all like this, alike, on the same plane together. There's no superiority whatsoever. Therefore, no one be declared righteous in God's sight by the works law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So I want to talk about this little word, three-letter word, called sin. Sin, And I know it carries a tremendous amount of baggage because we, and most of the time when we hear somebody say sin or sinner, we're thinking about somebody who's like looking down saying, you sinner, you stop doing that. And so that doesn't make us feel well. And so what's the issue behind that? It's the looking down. Like I'm up here and you're down there and you are a sinner. So what exactly is sin? Sin, everybody, is simply this. It's a very, very practical thing. It means to be superior in nature, superior in nature. This goes way back in history. We go all the way back, right, all the way back to what we're told about the devil. And believe it or not, let me do a quick timeout. You know, uh, this, this country, um, well over 90, 90% of the people believe in God, but like less than 50% of the people actually believe in the devil. And you know that those numbers have changed drastically in the last couple of years. Actually, that number has climbed from 50 to 60. I think we're getting close to 70%, right? Priests who do exorcisms are in great demand now. Oh, I just wanted to share that with you. <laughs> the devil... The devil. What is the deal with the devil? The devil says, I will be like God. I will rise up above everybody else and to be superior to all the other angels, I've got to be like God. And then what did he do with Adam and Eve? He came to Adam and Eve and says, you need to rise up. You need to become superior. You've got to get on God's level. What is the nature of sin? What is this power that we're all under? The power we're under is the need to be superior. The need to be superior. We, love, we crave it. I said it a few weeks ago. Do you feel superior to the people who feel superior? 
It's very subtle. It's very deceptive. But don't we all feel that's the power inside of us? Not, we're not in the same boat. We're not on the same team. I'm not the same with somebody else that's sinning over here. Like my sin, it might be sin, but it's a better sin than their sin. Do you know what I'm saying? Somehow I'm superior to them. And he's saying, you're not. You're on the same team. You're on the same level. Psalm 14, where he says, where he starts this whole thing. It, God, it says in verse three that God is looking down out of heaven. Here's the deal. When you and I look at each other, we say, oh, some people are six feet tall and some people are seven feet tall. Some people are four feet tall. But when God looks way up high, he doesn't see the height of other, but you can't see that if you're on a plane at 10,000 feet, everybody looks the same. And from God's viewpoint, as he looks down, you might be sinning a little and this person might be sinning a lot, but God sees total equality. That's what's being said here. And that rubs us the wrong way because I have a need, it's called sin, to be superior to other people. This is all over the place in the Bible. There are so many ways that this is, that this is talked about, right? A proud heart, a pr- pride, superior, pride, right? A proud heart, it says, is an abomination. It says that God hates haughty eyes. What are haughty eyes? Somebody who feels they're superior, somebody feels like they're better than other people. They are the lamp of the wicked. It says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Our superiority, our need for it is so subtle and it is so deceptive to us. We rationalize our mistakes and we criticize other people's mistakes, right? I can't believe they're late again to the office. How could they do that? But the morning that we're late, we're like, it was a bad morning, right? You know what I'm saying? We we can rationalize our own stuff, but we want them to repent of their stuff. Is that making sense? Because of that deep sin nature that we are superior. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You're all on the same level in the eyes of God. We are all the same. And this is why it's so hard. But wait a minute, I'm over here obeying and they're not. You're on the same level. That's the gospel. And when the gospel creeps into your soul and your heart and your very being, the spirit, that's when the Holy Spirit comes in. That's when the Spirit of Christ invades us in power when we're all on the same team. We're all under the power of sin. We're all under the power of superiority. There's no difference. C.S. Lewis, he actually wrote this many decades ago. You would think, oh my gosh, he wrote that last week? No, he did not write that last week. He wrote this many, many decades ago in Mere Christianity. And he's talking about this whole concept of this deep need for superiority. And he says, you know, sometimes like when you're reading the newspaper and you're reading about the opposing political party to you, whatever party you're not, the other party, the other political party, and some scandal is broken out. And oh my gosh, they're going to be removed from office. And as you read, you find joy, just lift, just, just filling. You're like, ah, yes. You're so happy. And then a week later, news traveled slower decades ago. And then a week later, and the week later, you read in the paper, oh no, it was all wrong. Actually, that was a total false report. Everything is fine. And you have deep sadness deep said. Do you really look at the other person of the opposing viewpoint, whatever it might be, and I'm not just talking about politics, but could be a person of opposing viewpoint in your house, at work, whatever. The, you pick the topic. There's lots of topics to talk about. Do you really look across them and say, yeah, I'm no better than them? Do you really? Or do deep down we look across to that person and say, is that the reason why we get angry in conversation? What, what don't you do in Washington, D.C.? You don't talk about two things. And what are the two things you don't talk about? Has anybody been around this city? Politics and religion. Why don't you? Because we get very angry. Because we can't handle it. And why would we get angry? Because we have a sin nature. Because we have to feel superior. It's a need in us. We're under this power. Um, 
Blaise Pascal said this, talking specifically about this sin nature, the need to be superior. Look at what he says. Nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine. Yet, without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are all incomprehensible to ourselves. So Jesus said it this way. He says, you know what? If you lose yourself, you'll find your true self. If you lose yourself, you'll find your true self. Isn't that amazing? Saying the same thing that Pascal is saying right here. The story of the prodigal son is famous. We all call it the story of the prodigal son. Isn't it interesting how we do that? The story of the prodigal son. You have one younger son who is incredibly misbehaving. He's immoral. He's tremendously immoral. Right? The things he does is terrible. It's terrible. The things that he goes out and he lives his life and does all these bad things and spends all of his dad's money. He's so rude. It's so, so misbehaved. And then he comes back and his father loves him and wraps his arms around him, you know, and says, I invite you into my feast, to my banquet, to my kingdom, to my pleasure. Come in, and the son goes in, right? Weeping and crying, he goes in. We call it the story of the prodigal son. It's not the story of the prodigal son. You know why? We flip that around. We say, it's about the, it's about the younger son. Because we have to be superior in nature. Because it's really a story about the older son, the well-behaved, Bible-believing, high-character son who'd been there the whole time doing the right thing. It's a story about him. This is how the gospel flips everything upside down. It's not about the misbehaving younger. It's actually about the well-behaved older son. And the father comes to him, and the older son is all ticked off. He's like, come into my kingdom. Come into my banquet. He's like, I ain't going in there. I want no part of the kingdom of God. What are you talking about? What was keeping him out? His morality, his, well, his good behavior, his Bible-obeying ways were keeping him out of God's kingdom. Tim Keller puts it this way. Listen to this. What keeps people from salvation is not so much their sins, but their good works. That's what the story of the prodigal son is really all about. And this is what Paul is trying to explain in Romans 3, verses 9 to 20. He is reflecting back on all the sins that he mentioned in Romans 1, 18 to 32, and there are a lot of them. And he's saying the tremendously immoral person and the Bible-believing tremendously moral person are both alike under the power of sin. And in our world, that just doesn't quite make sense. But in the gospel world, it does. And when we understand that the power of his spirit, the spirit of Christ enters our life and it will enter no other way. So the world gets changed when his spirit comes down and breaks through into our lives and around us, but it comes no other way. This is the amazing thing. John Gerstner put it this way. The way to God is wide open. There is nothing standing between the sinner and his God. He has immediate and unimpeded access to the Savior. There is nothing to hinder. No sin can hold you back because God offers justification to the ungodly. Nothing now stands between the sinner and God but the sinner's good works. Nothing can keep him from Christ but his delusion that he has good works of his own that can satisfy God. All they need is need. All they must have is nothing, but alas, sinners cannot part with their virtues. This is what 
Paul is describing in Romans 3. So much of what we read in this story of the younger son and the older son, the moral misbehaving, the moral behaving son is being reflected by Paul here in Romans chapter 3. He's trying to tell us the story that we're all on the same team, that there is no levels. We're all alike in the eyes of God who is looking down from above. And when we are in fear of God, when we're in awe of God, when we have a large view of God, we begin to grasp that. That's the gospel truth. So Paul is not changing sin. He is expanding it. He's not changing it. Some people, as we've gone through this, I know what you have felt because I felt the same thing. I've been in church all my life. All my life. I'm like, Paul, what are you saying? Are you saying that these things over here aren't sin anymore? He's like, no, I'm not saying they're not sinning. Of course they're sin. But, but, but you can't look over there and say, okay, everything that you guys are doing, that's the real sin. And I might be imperfect, but I'm not habitually sinning. I'm not habitually sinning all the time. And my sins are a little bit less in nature than their sins because, you know, up and down, right? Actually, what Paul is doing, he's expanding sin. He's not pulling it back. He's not changing things that are sin. He's expanding it so it not just covers these people over here, but it fully covers me in the same way over here. And now what do we have? We don't have two boats. We got one boat. And that's when we find our swing. That's when we find our power. Can you, can you receive that? Can you receive that truth of the gospel and receive the power of his spirit? by knowing that we're actually all in the same boat together. Isaiah puts it like this. Now, Isaiah was about as behaving, as believing, as any person, moral character, you name it. Isaiah is it. One of the biggest books in the Bible, he says this, all of us, including himself, have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now, Paul follows it up in Philippians and says it this way. And this is powerful. Look, guys, Paul really knew the Bible, and he really believed, and he really behaved. He, he, he behaved on a level far greater than any of this, on us in this room are ever going to be able to pull off. Right? He had the first five books of the Bible memorized, and he committed his life decade after decade after decade in a long history, family history, of following every letter of the law. Look what he says. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for the righteousness, I obeyed the law with out fault. I once thought that these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as what? Garbage. All of his obedience to the law, which he gave his life to do. He studied and he applied. He studied and he applied. This is garbage. Because one day his entire life changed on the road to Damascus. And all of a sudden he saw Christ for who Christ was. And Christ was high and lifted up. He's like, oh my goodness. You're not down here and there's different levels of people. You're way up there. And we are all the same in your eyes. And by your love and by your mercy and by your grace, you accept all of us if we will just come to you, if we will come to you, if we will come to you. 
And he got, and his life changed. It was transformed. And he used to be a person that was so obsessed with sin, whether it was his or somebody else's, that he persecuted the church harshly because he had a low view of God. Now, he, now he's not focused on other people's sins. Where he was dragging people off to jail because of things they were doing wrong, now instead, because of the gospel, because it was clarified to him, he's looking at himself. He doesn't have time to be obsessed with these people over here who are misbehaving. He, instead, the gospel has turned him toward himself, and this is what he says in 1 Timothy 1.15. Here is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners And I am the worst of them all. What a transformation. Our world has been changed because the Holy Spirit entered in, and this is how the Holy Spirit enters in when we understand that we're all in the same boat. There's not two different boats. There's not the Christians or the people who don't believe in God and they're living whatever way, and then the people who really believe. We're the ones that really believe, and man, we're in this boat You guys just got to get over on this boat. And we're going to tell you about it. We're all in the exact same boat together. We all look alike to God. When we understand that, when we grasp that, we find our swing. We find the power of the Spirit entering our life because that superior nature in us is what holds the Spirit back from our lives. When we understand a fear of God, when we're in awe of God, as the psalmist writes about it, he says, God, when I saw your incredible forgiveness... I was in awe of you. I was in fear of you. God, Paul says in Ephesians 5.21, when I understood, when I understood who you were, I was willing to truly serve other people. It was so changed his life. So I want to give you three ways, just three simple ways at how we can begin to break this power of sin that's over us, okay? Three ways. The first way is realistic. It's not on your outlines. The first one is just totally realistic. So Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, he says, it's a famous saying. I'm sure many of us will know it even if we don't know our Bibles. We're familiar with this concept. Why are you concerned about the speck in somebody else's eye when you have a plank in your own? Anybody familiar with that? Why are you so concerned about the speck in somebody else's eye when you have a huge plank in your own? Why? You become critical. You become judgmental. Like, I can easily see specks in other people's eyes. Why? Because I'm superior. I can easily see the speck in their eye. And here I am with a plank in my own eye. So I've got to be very realistic. If Christ is saying that to people, I've got to realize that means I must have planks. That's just realistic. I can't say, yeah, that's right. All these people out there, you know, concern. <laughs> Why do they do that? Judgmental people. I'm not going to go to church. It's filled with hypocrites. There's always a seat for another hypocrite, right? We're all... <laughs> Aren't we all... Can we be realistic? We're all the same. We love to look over and say, yes, we're all the same. That's realistic. Number two, number two, just very, very practical. I said it earlier. Can you discuss... Something with somebody else. You pick the topic of an opposing view without becoming degrading, whether in words or in your mind or in your spirit. Can you walk away without saying, that stupid idiot. Can you do that? Can you do that? Can you have these conversations? Is it possible to do that? That's what's going on in this church, very diverse church in Rome. The third one is purely spiritual, everybody. And it's simply this. Christ, this week, and here's my, challenge, here's my big challenge to you this week. This is where I want to come all the way back to the beginning and say, you know what, there's something really big at stake here, and this is what I want to ask you to do, and it's completely unnatural, but it's totally about what Paul is talking about here in the gospel. Can you say to Christ, would you please show me my planks? 
Would you show me my superiority, my sin nature, my need to be superior? Would you examine my heart? So the psalmist in Psalm uh, 139 says it, search me, O God, search me. He goes on, he says, watch this, search me, O God, know my heart. What was the tendency when we have a problem? Hey, God, show them their heart, show them their sin. But how does the land get healed in Scripture? The land gets healed when God's people were following him say, you know, we're going to humble ourselves? How does our city get changed? Not when those people were there changed, but in the gospel, it flips it upside down. It's so wild. You know, the greatest will be the servant. When you're weak, you're strong. Flips upside down. The issue is show me my planks. Show me what's wrong with me. He goes on, right? Search me, O God. Know my heart. Point out everything that offends you about me. I love to pray prayers. God, would you show those people over there everything that they're doing that offends you and me both? And actually what the gospel is saying is, here's how the power of the Spirit enters in. This is how we enter into our swing. This is when the Spirit falls and His kingdom breaks through. It's when I have the guts to say, God, show me everything. That offends you about me. Psalm 26, test me, try me, examine my heart and mind. Job and Jeremiah prayed the same thing. John the Baptist did too. He must increase. I must decrease. It's not about my superiority. It's about God. Show me who I am. Show me my planks in my life. We are all in the same boat. We're all under the power of sin. But this is how his kingdom breaks through to us. So I just want to encourage you, challenge you. This week, if you want to experience, we keep reading Romans 1.16. We keep reading this. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power. It's been proven historically to be powerful. Here's the path to experiencing all the power of the gospel that Paul keeps talking about that historically has changed our world. God, Jesus, search my heart this week. Show me those ways that are wrong. Show me where I'm being superior. Show me the planks in my life. I'd like to, us to end uh, this week the same way we did last week. I'd like us to end by praying together the Lord's Prayer, which talks about His kingdom coming and His will being done in our lives. Before I do that, I'd like us to just take 10 seconds and think about what Paul is saying here and about the power of the gospel and about maybe what you're going to do this week, what prayers you're going to pray to God this week that will have a difference in our lives. Let's just take a moment. Hmm. It's very difficult to pray that prayer, God, search me, try me, know my way. But there is a power in that, the losing of self to find your true self. Can we all pray together the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.